Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 1. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zerman Jr., and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920. In this episode, I'll be talking about the facts and myths around the two matches between Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt. During May 2016, after researching the men's careers and the matches for the previous two years, I released Gotch vs. Hackenschmidt, the matches that built and destroyed legitimate American professional wrestling. I took an in-depth look at both men's career leading into the match and discovered things I heard about the matches in the past did not quite measure up to the facts. But first, I wanted to provide a brief introduction to to you since you may not be familiar with me unless you have read some of my books, such as Gotch vs. Hackenschmidt, Double Crossing the Gold Dust Trio, or Evan the Strangler Lewis. I have authored 18 nonfiction books at the time of this recording, June 5, 2022. Originally, when I first started my website in 2013, it was to capture the family history and use the skills I had learned at Washington University in St. Louis as a political science major and history minor to record our family history. I then branched out into the focusing on the history of my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. And then I started focusing also on combat sports history. I've been a professional wrestling fan since I was a kid. Uh, My stepfather, who raised us, introduced me to boxing And then I became a big MMA fan as I've been a martial artist for the last 20 plus years. I've focused my writing since 2018 mostly on combat sports and really mostly focused on professional wrestling during what I term the legitimate era between 1870 and 1915 or thereabouts. It's it's not an exact date. But I also sometimes get into wrestling history into the 1920s and the 1930s as well, talking about double crosses. At the end of the show, I'll tell you a little bit about how I became a wrestling fan and also why I named this podcast It Was Almost Real. So, let's jump into this week's show. So one of my main motivations for creating this podcast was the ability to answer questions or inquiries I get from time to time in a more detailed fashion. Nobody wants to receive the really long emails a lot of times that it would take to fully answer somebody's question. As my buddy Cedric used to say, if you haven't captured our attention in the first two lines, we're deleting that thing. But since people can do things while they listen, I thought this would be a a great format to discuss some of the questions I've gotten over the past few years and also some of the comments. So I'm not going to share this gentleman's name uh, because I don't have his permission, but uh, I put up a post on Facebook a few weeks ago and I got some comments about it and some of them were were around Gotch and Hackenschmidt. And the the gentleman uh, put out some common... It's... Professional wrestling is an interesting mix of fact and fiction. And so this gentleman had put out some of the things that uh, he had heard about the Gotch versus Hackenschmidt matches in the past. 
also it mirrors what I uh, had heard about it and believed when I started writing the book. And it's why I did not think very much of Frank Gotch when I started writing the book, and it, my opinion changed a little bit after. But I, I thought a lot of Hackenschmidt before I wrote the book. But the gentleman's comment was, Gotch almost ruined wrestling as well when he hired a shooter to hurt Hackenschmidt where he couldn't actually wrestle. He agreed, meaning Hackenschmidt, to meet Gotch if Gotch would at least let him win a fall. But Gotch screwed him over and won three straight falls. Once the news of this broke out, it nearly killed wrestling. It went from front page news to somewhere in the back of the paper. The shooter's name was Ad Santel. And so I answered it, trying to be uh, concise. And uh, the gentleman was kind enough to respond back and share where he had originally got the information. And I'll, I'll go into it a little bit here in depth of where some of this information comes from. The story I read was Santel was paid to infiltrate Hackenschmidt's camp. And while doing an in exhibition... He purposely injured the Russian Lion, and the promoters begged him to still wrestle since they invested so much in the rematch. And he agreed to a payoff if he could at least win a fall, which Gotch double-crossed him on. And their first, their first match was also highly controversial because Gotch employed dirty tactics such as brawling, and the ref turned a blind eye to it, causing Hackenschmidt to storm out of the ring. It's in the Wrestling Historian's book, uh, Idiot's Guide to Professional Wrestling by Lou Albano and Burt Sugar. And where they got it in the, the book that it's in, which I had not read actually when I wrote Gotch vs. Hackenschmidt, I read it afterwards, is a book called uh, Fall Guys by Marcus Griffin. And that the book it will be in the show notes. If you go to KinsermanJr.com, I'll have show notes for each episode, and I'll put any of these references that I use in those show notes. Going into writing the book... I knew the Ad Santel story. Luthez told it on The Unreal Story of Professional Wrestling, which was an A&E documentary in the late 90s. And I believed it when I heard it. The story was that Gotch paid Ad Santel, who was one of the training partners of Hackenschmidt, $5,000. He paid Santel $5,000 to injure Hackenschmidt during a training session so Hackenschmidt would be debilitated for their match. So going into the researching and writing the book, I had heard the story, believed the story, and I didn't think much of Gotch. And I really always respected Hackenschmidt because I had read his workout book, but it also, the last, probably more than the last half of that book, is the story of his life, which was his autobiography. And that's How to Live in Health and Strength by George Hackenschmidt. Uh, if you ever want to read a, a really good life story the last half of that book is wonderful the the workout stuff is interesting and it's all from the pre-steroid days but you you've got to realize we made a, a lot of improvement since that part of the book was written but to get into the main part of our discussion i did not know the story about Hackenschmidt, well, I should say allegedly, because I don't believe it, and I'll tell you why, nor do I believe the Santel story anymore. But I had not heard the story that the second match was a double cross. I was listening to Jim Cornette's uh, podcast. I believe it was The Experience. It could have been The Drive-Thru. 
but they were talking about the Montreal screw job and then they were talking about famous double crosses in history. And the second Gotch Hackenschmidt match came up as a double cross. But not because Santel had injured him, but because Hackenschmidt wanted to call the match off and they didn't want to lose a fortune, which you'll hear about as I do the timeline. So they begged him to go on and they agreed that Gotch would carry him and let him win uh, one fall. And that Gotch didn't do that. He went out, gobbled him up, beat him, and made him look terrible in front of the fans. Well, there's some fact in there, and there's a whole lot of fiction. Hackenschmidt was injured. He did want to postpone the match, but the rest of it is not the way it happened. But before we start to look into the fact and the fiction of all the things that were said, let's start in the beginning. So in 1901, George Hackenschmidt wins all the tournaments in Europe, and He's at least the champion of Europe, but most people recognize him as the world champion. And he goes on a tour of the world from 1901 to 1908. He defends his championship in Australia. He defends the championship in the United States. And initially, he's defending the title in Greco-Roman wrestling because that was the dominant style in Europe, and that was the style he initially learned. But as he travels and he goes to Australia and catch wrestling is so popular there and in America catch wrestling is so popular there, he begins to learn catch wrestling and he starts defending the title in catch wrestling and is still beating everyone, which is amazing for a Greco-Roman wrestling specialist to be able to make that transition to catch wrestling so quickly. But Hackenschmidt was an amazing guy. In 1904, Frank Gotch wins the American Heavyweight Championship and wants to wrestle Hackenschmidt at the St. Louis World's Fair. Millions of people from around the world came to St. Louis for the World's Fair, so it's easy to see why Gotch thought that that would be the largest crowd ever to come to a wrestling match. I think that it easily could have drawn 10, 20, or 30,000 fans, which would have been a record. Uh, yes, in 1908 it would have been a record. Gotch surpassed that later in Kansas City, but... In 1908, if they would have drawn over 10,000 fans, that would have been a record. I don't know of anywhere else where they drew 10,000 fans. Hackenschmidt, though, was touring and did not come to the United States in 1904. And in early 1905, Frank Gotch loses the title to Tom Jenkins. Tom Jenkins has the distinction of being the only person that beat Frank Gotch three times, and two of them were for the American Heavyweight Championship. Hackenschmidt comes to America in 1905. As a matter of fact, he comes to St. Louis and wrestles a couple local wrestlers, George Baptiste and some other gentleman he'd never heard of, I'd never heard of, and beat them quite easily. But he came to America specifically to wrestle Tom Jenkins. They had wrestled once in England in Greco-Roman, and Hackenschmidt had beat him, and Hackenschmidt promised to come to America and defend the title against Jenkins and catch as catch can wrestling, which he did, and he beat Jenkins. Later in early 1906, Gotch wins his championship back from Jenkins. And other than a work switch with Fred Beal, he doesn't lose the American title anymore after that. But 
Hackenschmidt has gone back to touring different places and doesn't return to America till 1908. By all accounts, Gotch was furious that Hackenschmidt didn't come to the United States in 1904 to wrestle at the World's Fair. He felt he was cheated out of a big payday. They arranged for a match April 3rd, 1908 at Dexter Park in Chicago, and they drew 6,000 fans, which was a good crowd. Uh, the only crowd bigger than that that Gotch drew, he drew, I think it was 10,000 fans in Kansas City to wrestle uh, Yusef Mahmoud. Um, I don't even know that they got to 10,000 fans in Chicago when he wrestled Zabisco in 1910. But that was a very good crowd. And the only controversy about this match is the referee, Ed Smith, the sporting editor for the Chicago American, let Gotch freely foul Hackenschmidt throughout the whole match. So Gotch palm-struck, head-butted, uh, gouged his eyes, and kneed him throughout the two hours that the bout lasted. Hackenschmidt appealed to Smith several times to have Gotch stop fouling, and it fell on deaf ears. Ed Smith ignored him. So by the end of the two hours, Hackenschmidt's eyes were swollen, his cheeks were swollen, he, he was just a mess. And depending on who you read it, read, he either said to Ed Smith or Frank Gotch, I surrendered my title to Mr. Gotch. In the Chicago Tribune, I read that he said it to Ed Smith. He did not storm out of the ring. He did not complain to the referee, or I'm sorry, he did not complain to the press about the referee's treatment. Marcus Griffin claims, besides the fact that he stormed out of the ring, that he made a interview to the Manchester News in England that Gotch was completely oiled up and that he couldn't get a grip on him, which is possible, but he never made that complaint in the 1908, and he didn't even talk about the Gotch matches in his autobiography. So maybe that interview happened, maybe it didn't, but at the time, he did not storm out of the ring, he did not complain, and he was also suffering from a knee, in, knee ailment that had been dogging him for the past year. He had what at the time was called preacher's knee, housemaid's knee, water on the knee, but he had continuing knee issues. So much so that almost as soon as the first match between Gotch and Hackenschmidt was over, Gotch and his manager, Emil Clank, were trying to get a rematch with Hackenschmidt because they thought that that was the biggest money match out there for Gotch. Hackenschmidt wanted nothing to do with it when 1909 and 1910. He basically just trained wrestlers, which is how he met Ad Santel. Ad Santel was one of his uh, pupils and under the real name Adolf Ernst. When I was researching the book at first, I thought the whole thing about Santel injuring him would be impossible because he wasn't in camp, but he was in camp at least for a couple of weeks uh, towards the end of the training camp. He had come over to America to help Hackenschmidt get ready. But Hackenschmidt wasn't wrestling professionally. He was just training and uh, ref absolutely refused. But towards the end of 1910, he starts feeling well enough that maybe he can start training again and take one more shot at defeating Gotch, who had been the first person who had defeated him 
since 1899. He didn't win all the tournaments in 1901 because he had to withdraw because of injury, but he was not defeated by anyone. So he hadn't been defeated in, in about nine years. He decides he's going to start training for a comeback. And initially the training goes well, but by the time he gets to America and he's a couple weeks into his training camp, his knees are starting to bother him again. And then he bangs knees with Dr. Benjamin Roller, who is running his camp for him. And he is, his knee is swollen. He can't train properly. He continues to try, but about a week out from the event, he does approach Jack Curley, who was in his first promotional venture ever. Jack Curley would later become the promoter of New York and a big uh, power broker in the professional wrestling business but in 1911 he was just a newbie promoter and he panicked as soon as Hackenschmidt said he wanted to cancel, cancel the bout because they knew that the match which was scheduled for Comiskey Park on Labor Day was going to be a huge event they had already had uh, 10 or 20,000 tickets sold prior to the match Hackenschmidt agrees to go on because of the financial loss they're going to take, but only if they cancel the betting. One of the allegations that Griffin makes against Curley in the book The Fall Guys is that he made a killing betting on the bout between Gotch and Hackenschmidt. Yet, in the newspaper before the match, and at the match itself, the... Uh, ring announcer, PA announcer, whoever it was, announces that there will be no betting on the, the match. So there may have been still some people who bet on it, but you would have had to be an idiot to do that after they announced it in the newspaper and they announced it in the stadium that there'll be no betting on the match. That is why Hackenschmidt agreed to go on. Hackenschmidt is one of the few wrestlers that I can never find took part in worked matches. As a matter of fact, when he was here in 1905, he was furious because he said every wrestler and their managers approached him with all kinds of dishonest uh, deals to put them over, to have them put him over, you know, to do business. And he was disgusted by that. He says, I'm a sportsman, and not, I can't remember, sportsman, not a showman or something like that. So he accused the Americans of faking in 1905. So as soon as... I respect Jim Cornette and Brian Lass so much. I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand when I first heard it on the show. And a couple of gentlemen that run a wrestling historian club in Indiana and have read my book and several books on Gotch reached out to me that day and said, hey, did you hear that? I had never heard that the second Gotch-Hackenschmidt match was a work. I said, neither have I, but, you know, I respect these guys. Let me look into... Uh, where it's coming from, and that's when I found out it came from the Fall Guys. So, um, there was, I, if Hackenschmidt made that kind of agreement, it would have been completely out of character to anything that he had ever done in his career before. So, I, I just don't believe that he agreed to that. The actual match itself drew 30,000 people, I'm sorry, 30,000 fans to Comiskey Park, 
And they were furious when they left, but it wasn't because Gotch went out there and gobbled them up and it was... Hackenschmidt resisted as well he could for the first fall. It took Gotch 14 minutes to score the first fall. But all the newspaper accounts that covered the match said that going back for the intermission, which they usually rested 15 minutes between falls, Hackenschmidt looked spent. So when they met for the, the second fall, it took Gotch only a couple minutes to get Hackenschmidt down, and he started working for the toehold. And the toehold that... Gotch had a couple of toeholds. He had the working one where he really wasn't putting pressure on the person because he was working with them. He had the one where it was more like an ankle lock and would put pressure on the ankle. And then he had one where he stuck the toes underneath his armpit. And it was more like a standing inverted heel hook. I'm not an expert on leg locks. I've done judo. I've done some jiu-jitsu. I don't do as much with leg locks. But the one that he where he put the toes underneath his armpit was the one that was the most dangerous. He starts working for the toehold, and Hackenschmidt says, Mr. Gotch, please don't break my leg. And they're in a stadium with 30,000 people. Gotch didn't hear him at first, and he kind of growls and looks over his shoulder and says, What'd you say? And he said, Mr. Gotch, please don't break my leg. And Gotch said, Well, there'll have to be a fall. And so Hackenschmidt, who was kind of sitting there uh, on an elbow, laid back for the second fall. And it was a two out of three fall match. So it was not three straight falls. It was a two out of three fall match. Hackenschmidt lays back for the second fall. So Gotch did it to humiliate him. But the fans who were sitting there see them in the middle of the ring, start talking to each other, and then Hackenschmidt lays down on his back. And what is the number one accusation against professional wrestling throughout the ages, it's all a work. And they thought that they had been worked and they were being ripped off. So they were furious. Fortunately, they didn't try to burn anything down, but it was common in that era. They had a detachable seat cushion. Most people sat on at the sporting events, on the hard chairs and that. And a lot of times in those early wrestling matches when the fans were displeased, they would start winging those chair pads into the ring, and that's what happened in this match. They started winging the chair pads. The police had to get in there and get the wrestlers out very quickly, and it was that was the big con controversy in the newspapers. The newspapers all thought that it was some dirty deal in the second fall, but it was actually uh, just Hackenschmidt didn't want to have his leg broke. He knew he couldn't resist him, and he was already in a debilitated condition and didn't want it to get any worse, and... Gotch won the second fall. But the stink of that match, I think, really hastened. Wrestling, there's always been pressure on professional wrestlers to work their matches because legitimate contests between two equally skilled wrestlers could be boring as all get out. In the 1880s, Clarence Whistler and William Muldoon engaged in a world championship match which, lat, which turned into a seven-hour draw. And it was a Greco-Roman match. So they're in an upper-body tie-up for seven hours. Very little action. The same thing happened at the end of the, the spring, the 1950 New York International Wrestling Tournament. 
was very successful, and many of those matches were actually contests. But the the championship match, which was a contest between Alex Aberg, Alexander Aberg, and Vladek Zabisco, was in Greco-Roman wrestling. They were both very skilled Greco-Roman wrestlers. The match went three hours and 45 minutes. They finally canceled it, I think, when Zabisco collapsed and called it a draw. And then they didn't have the championship. They redid the championship match in October, but by that point, the fans had lost interest. And they had to resort to a gimmick to save the spring tournament. I'm sorry, they had to resort to a gimmick to spring the fall tournament, not the spring tournament. But pro wrestling would never draw a crowd of 30,000 fans again until the 1930s with the Jim Londos phenomenon. Ed Strangler Lewis got them back up into the tens of thousands. Um, the match with Wayne Munn in Detroit drew 17,000 fans. In the match, uh, Stecker and Stanislaus Zabisco, after the famous double cross in 1925, those two matches were to put the championships on Lewis and Stecker and then to be eventually uh, recombined after they agreed to a, a contest, which took three years for them to agree to. Those matches both drew between fifteen and 17,000 fans. But they never got close to 30,000 fans again until Jim Alondis in the 1930s. Most of the 19-teens are kind of considered a lost decade. You had... Joe Stecker and Ed Strangler Lewis arrive, but they wouldn't, Lewis wouldn't be Lewis until the 1920s. And Stecker was very good, but they were in front of small crowds, five, six thousand, four, five, six thousand people. And then World War II, I'm sorry, World War I interrupted as well, which further hurt pro wrestling. So the, the second Gotch Hackenschmidt match is the match that really hastened pro wrestling from legitimate contest to worked matches. By 1915, you only have a handful of legitimate contests. And then after 1915, well, 1917, I think that was the last time Lewis and Stecker shot with each other until 28. After that, period of time, definitely into the 1920s. The only time you have legitimate contests is when you have double crosses or they've agreed to a shoot contest to settle promotional disputes. That happened quite a bit too. But that's why I always say the Gotch versus Hackenschmidt matches, those two matches, they built the sport. It became a much more popular spectator sport after Gotch won the world title and was the fair-haired champion and then they killed it with that second match because the stench of that and people thinking that they had got done dirty hurt the business for over 10 years. Now, since I'm starting to ramble a little bit, and you got to watch historians, we tend to ramble. I wanted to finish the podcast today just talking about, one, how I became a pro wrestling fan, and there's two people that are primarily responsible for that. The first one was my natural father, Ken Sr. He introduced me to St. Louis's wrestling at the Chase in either 1978 or 1979. And St. Louis was the home of Sam Muchnick's promotion. Sam Muchnick was a very well-respected 
promoter, president of the National Wrestling Alliance, and he brought a lot of the stars from around the country. So in St. Louis, some of our favorites were Ted DiBiase, the Von Erich brothers. We started getting the Von Erichs here in 78 and 79 as soon as they started wrestling. And in St. Louis, wrestling was presented much more as a sport. There were no exposés on this phony wrestling business. There were no tongue-in-cheek things in the newspaper. The newspapers didn't say, oh, this stuff is, you know, on the up-and-up or legitimate, but they just reported on the match results. They would occasionally run a feel-good public interest story on Sam or one of the wrestlers, but it was very well-respected in St. Louis. And that's what I was exposed to as, as a young wrestling fan. The second person who was most important in my becoming a wrestling fan was my oldest sister, Vicky. So my mom and dad divorced when I was 11, and when I was 12, my mom remarried my stepdad, Ernest Charles Diaz, who me and my sisters consider our dad to this day. And his oldest daughter, my oldest sister, Vicky, was 15 years older than me and a diehard wrestling fan. But nobody else in the family liked wrestling, and they always made fun of us for liking it you know, but we didn't care because we enjoyed it. So as soon as she found out I was a wrestling fan, and when I say I was a wrestling fan, Wrestling at the Chase was on at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, but the show first aired Saturday, well, I guess it was Sunday morning, but the TV guy considered it Saturday night, and 2 a.m. on Sunday morning was the first showing of that week's show. During the summer, my grandfather owned a lake lot, so we would go down to the lake and go fishing or go swimming every Sunday. So during the summer, I would miss wrestling if I watched the 11 o'clock show. But unbeknownst to my parents, I would stay up downstairs until 2 o'clock, watch the 2 o'clock show, go to bed at 3 o'clock, and get up like three hours later, four hours later to go to the lake. And... You know, I, I did that for two years, I think, three years, because I started watching in 78. Sam retired January 1st, 1982, and my sister and I were at that show. And within a year, year and a half, Wrestling at the Chase was replaced by WWF at the time, and the St. Louis promotion started to go downhill. But my sister and I had season tickets through 1981, 1982, and we still went to the shows because when Bob Geigel was promoting in St. Louis, they would still get the Von Erichs from World Class. They would get some of Vern's talent from the AWA. So we were still going to the matches. Then we just didn't have season tickets anymore because when the St. Louis Wrestling Club closed up, the season tickets went away and you just bought tickets when the, the shows came. But my sister by far was the biggest reason I became such a diehard wrestling fan because I got to go all the time. I would only be able to watch it on TV until mom and dad got married, and then Vicky took me to all the matches. Well, actually, she started taking me before they got married. Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, my sister got sick last year, and she passed early on this year, and this is not a sad thing. She was at peace with it. We were at peace with it. Um... But in one of our last conversations, she had brought up her and I going to the wrestling matches all the time. Because that's one of my fondest memories is being a kid. 
was going to the matches with my older sister. And I said, have you been watching any of it? And she said, that fake crap. Now realize, we knew in the 80s that it was a work sport. I remember even as a kid, I figured out for the first time, wait a minute, because there was just no explaining it. When I realized Dewey Robertson was the missing link, Dewey Robertson had been a straight-laced fan favorite in St. Louis, and now all of a sudden he's got his hair shaved into this thing, and he's running and battering people with his head. There was no explanation that could explain that change to a gimmick other than, you know, something funny was going on. But we knew it was worked, but we still enjoyed it. But the problem now is, and the reason I don't watch much pro wrestling anymore, I watch a little bit, but I, I don't watch a whole lot, is because, <clears throat> yes, we knew it was worked then, and it's no big deal if you tell us it's worked. But if you say you're entertainment, and I'm saying this about both the major companies because both of them do the same nonsense, if you're going to say you're entertainment, then follow the rules of entertainment. When you watch a television show like Vikings, which is one of the best well-written shows on uh, TV's ever produced, but I think it was a History Channel Canada production, during Vikings when Ivor the Boneless is getting ready to, to torture uh, a priest, they don't stop in the middle of that scene and look at the camera and say, hey, if it's getting a little too intense, we just wanted you to know that we're really not doing this thing. We're actors. By the way, my name's Alex, and this is my buddy Joey. And then they put their arm around each other, and they smile for the camera. So, you know, don't, don't get too shook up about this. And then they go back to doing their acting. No one would watch their show anymore. If they do the same kind of stuff on social media, nobody cares. So if you want to talk about the great match you just had with your opponent on social media, nobody cares. But doing it in the middle of the show or using all this insider jargon and you know turning around and winking at the camera, breaking the fourth wall, you're violating the rules of what you say you're trying to emulate. So I don't enjoy as much of the new product as I, I did of the old. But I'm also, I don't see the old matches in quite the rose-colored glasses some of my contemporaries do. There were still holes in the matches in the 70s and the 80s. Nothing like you see today. But there were still plot holes when they would set up some of the storylines. I know people hate acting terminology, plot holes. Whatever you want to say it. When they were setting up a feud or they were setting up an angle, there were sometimes holes in those angles that you could see through. They were done most of the time better than they are today, but there were still holes. And World Class is probably my second favorite promotion behind St. Louis. But if you look at World Class, in 82 it was okay. 83 and 84 it was good actually 83 it was the best 84 it was pretty good but after david von eric dies you can definitely see the program dropped a little bit and i think that's because he was probably pretty creative behind the scenes 85 is okay once carrie got hurt and was out that show took a serious drop and it never really came back from it so not everything is golden so before we end the show, why would I name this podcast 
the It Was Almost Real podcast. And the main reason I did it is because when I first started researching pro wrestling during this time period, I thought I was going to be researching a legitimate sport uh, before it transitioned into worked exhibitions. And I really intended to only write about legitimate contests. Not that I didn't enjoy the work matches of my youth, but I, I wanted to go back and research wrestling when it was real. Well, what I found was carnivals, work matches, legitimate contests, and why I named the podcast the It Was Almost Real podcast, or It Was Almost Real, I'm sorry, the Pro Wrestling History podcast, is because from the very beginning... I found matches to go back to 1870. There were matches in 1860s. I just haven't found them yet. But from the very beginning of the sport, there were work matches. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It was not always a work sport. Most of the matches prior to 1915 were legitimate contests. But work matches go all the way back as far as I've studied. And almost... All the wrestlers I've looked at took part in at least one or two. The notable exceptions, I already said George Hackenschmidt, and I haven't found any with Tom Jenkins. Um, I may have to revise that in the future if I find any, but Tom Jenkins I haven't found working matches. But almost every other huge star, including William Muldoon, Evan Strangler-Lewis, Martin Farmer-Burns, Frank Gotch, all worked matches. So that's why I say it was almost real. The, the sport was never completely legitimate contests. There have always been worked matches. But you'll never ever hear me use the F word. I don't ever say fake because pro wrestling is an art. The injuries and everything that they get are real. Um... So that, that's not a word you'll ever hear in my lexicon. I also try not to use a lot of insider jargon because I'm not an insider. I'm a historian and researcher, so I try to make that distinction. And I think that's about it for this week. So I'm planning on releasing an episode every Monday for the next four weeks. And then after that, it will probably become a second and fourth Monday of the month production that could change if i get a lot of questions I, I encourage the listeners if you have questions that you would like me to talk about please go to kinsermanjr.com on the contact page you can reach me either through email or through the facebook or twitter and you know i'd love to interact love to answer some questions and next week is actually going to be based on a question I got a couple months ago about the biggest box office attraction of the 1930s and possibly all time. And I don't use much insider information, but next uh, episode we're going to talk about terminology and what the terms performer, shooter, and hooker mean. And when we talk about hooker, we're not talking about a American slang term uh, for a prostitute. In professional wrestling, hooker means something quite different. And we'll talk about what a hook is as well. 
So, KenZimmerMJr.com is the place to check out the show notes for today's episode. You can see what I'm working on currently and a list of books I have written if you are interested in digging deeper into this era of professional wrestling. And I thank you for listening today. I'd also be grateful if you'd rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. That helps tremendously with keeping the podcast visible, since I just started it. And so people who have never heard of it can discover it, which is probably just about everybody. If you have already done this, thank you so much. And then if you would like to comment on this episode or ask a question, as I said, just go to KenZimmerJr.com, find the contact page at the top navigation, and drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm not just saying that. Until next time, take care, everybody.